We are kind of nearing the end of a sermon series on the book of Daniel. Um, in fact, today we're going to be spending most of our time on the last sentence of the book. Uh, we're not going to close the series today. We'll probably do that a week later. Uh, but we're going to spend uh, a lot of time on the last chapter and specifically the last verse of, of the book of Daniel. But before we read the passage we're going to be looking at, uh, allow me to give us a little bit of a background. And we always kind of keep giving this background um, because we always expect new people, people who've never been to church, people who've never, been, uh, never read the Bible to be a part of us. And perhaps this is your first time in a church and, and we want you to know that, uh, that we're really keen to make sure that you're able to understand and track with everything that we are doing. Uh, and so allow me to give us a little bit of background on the passage uh, we're reading. Uh, we've been seeing the life of this man named Daniel, who lived roughly 600 years before Christ Jesus was born. Daniel was born in a nation called Israel, and when he was still in his teens, uh, early teens in fact, uh, the king of Babylon invaded Israel and Jerusalem, and he took thousands of professionals and artists and entrepreneurs as prisoners, uh, as exiles, into Babylon. Daniel was one of those young men who were kind of taken away forcibly, forced to leave their hometown and move into uh, Babylon. Daniel served under many kings in, in Babylon. And each of those kings tried to influence Daniel. Each of these kings tried to take, take Daniel away from in the God of the Bible, and they tried to kind of impose their faith uh, on, on him. But in reality, what happened was Daniel ended up influencing those kings with the faith, with his faith in the God of the Bible more than the kings could ever influence him. And so Daniel fought and won the battle for the formation of his identity. And that's the theme. How are our identities being formed every single day as we live a life in the city? That's the theme we've been looking at over the last 20, day, 20, 20 talks or so. And I know it's a theme that resonates with all of our hearts. Each of us, without exception, we are also fighting a battle for our identities. The city and the cultures around us want to shape us into a certain identity. Now, if you really distill it, this is what I think the city is. The city is trying to move us into an identity where we work hard, do well, and be successful in life, but not talk about Jesus. That's how the city wants us to live in. But God, God is kind of moving us, He's kind of working in us to create an identity where we still are going to be excellent in our work, but we're going to be working not just for our fulfillment, but also for the flourishing of others. And through our excellence and through our compassion to also be a witness to Jesus. The city is trying to make success our central identity, but God wants to make Christ Jesus our central identity. And this is the battle for the formation of our identities. The city does not want us to be public about our faith in Jesus, a faith that compels us to compassion, to serve the oppressed, to show love, to live a selfless life. That's the identity Jesus gives us. 
but the world and the city does not want us to be public about our identity uh, in Jesus. Uh, but despite these pressures, Daniel remained steadfast in his commitment. Uh, he retained his, his public faith. And that's why the life of Daniel is so helpful to us. As we've been seeing, <clears throat> one of the interesting things about this battle Daniel endured, that this is not a one-week, one-month kind of a battle. Daniel lived in this test for 70 long years. He came into Babylon as a teen. He lived there till he was about 90 years of age, almost 90 years of age. 70 years Daniel spent uh, in this kind of an environment. And the passage we've been going to be looking at is kind of happening when Daniel is almost 90 years old, at the end of his life. What we're going to be looking at this morning is what did Daniel get from God for his life of faithfulness? He was extremely faithful through these 70 years. What did Daniel get from God at the end of these 70 years? That's the theme for today. I'm going to be reading from Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 13 will come up for us on the screen. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who, was, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like, the bright, shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and forever. Verse 13, this is God speaking to Daniel. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Go your way till the end, you shall rest. The rest here means death. You shall die and, and shall rise again and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Let's, let me pray for us for a minute. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you. You're here in our midst. And we pray, Lord. We pray that you will bring the truth of eternity into our hearts in a way that goes beyond just our words and understanding in a way that only your Holy Spirit can bring it into our hearts. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, this passage that we read is the end of a, a long vision and a series of revelation that God gives Daniel. Uh, that is around three chapters, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. Uh, they're pretty intense, pretty deep revelations. We're not going to go into the details of those, but we're only going to stay focused on this passage. And through this passage, we're trying to see what did Daniel get from God for his life of faithfulness. And we know from some of the earlier talks that Daniel's heart longed for Jerusalem. We saw in one of the earlier talks that he would pray towards Jerusalem three times a day. And perhaps one of the things Daniel wanted the most was to go back to his beloved Jerusalem. But sadly, Daniel never could go back. He probably died in, in Babylon. Not only did Daniel never go back to Jerusalem, 
we also see, and I'm going to show that for us, that thousands of Israelites at the end of the 70 years went back to Jerusalem. So Daniel would have watched them go. He was the one who lived a life of faithfulness. He could never go back, but he would watch all of the others, thousands of people who were bought as slaves go back as free men and women to Jerusalem. If you look at the book of Ezra, which talks about the return of these slaves back, these exiles back to Jerusalem, uh, that happened, the book of Ezra tells us, in the first year of King Cyrus, who had taken over from the king of Babylon. But this passage we are seeing in Daniel chapter 10 uh, is actually happening the third year of King Cyrus. So for two years, Daniel sat and watched thousands of his fellow countrymen go back to Jerusalem, and he was still here. Why was he still in Babylon? Why could he not go back? The Bible doesn't give us the, the exact answer, but, but it's a, it's a, one can make an educated guess. He was 90 years old. He just couldn't go back. Maybe he was just too old enough to travel. Maybe he was in his deathbed. Maybe he was just about to die. Whatever the reason may be, he couldn't go back. And verse 13, the passage, that we, the passage that we read, is what God is telling Daniel at the end of this just magnificent book. Verse 13, Daniel, go your way till the end. Run your race. Last the course. And you shall die and shall rise again and stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So the reward Daniel, God is giving Daniel is something beyond death. The reward is not happening in this life, but the reward standing in the allotted place for him, a place of honor, is happening in the life after this. And so this entire passage, the central theme of this passage, is what happens after death. What happens after the end of days? What happens after the end of the world? Verse 2, the passage that we looked at, that's where it's pointing to. Many shall sleep in the dust, which is die, and shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting content. And that's going to be the theme of the talk this morning. And so from the passage we read, allow me to unpack three things for us. First, we're going to be looking at the explorer's imagination about the end of days. When I say explorer, I'm talking about those of us who are just checking Jesus out. We're just curious about him. Um, um, people who don't believe the Bible. The explorer's imagination about the end of days. Second, we're going to look at the believer's faith about the end of days. And second, we're going to see how our identity is shaped by what we believe about the end of days. The explorer's imagination about the end of days, the believer's faith about the end of days, and identity at the end of days. If this is your first time in a church, I bet you didn't walk in uh, wanting to hear a talk on about life after death. Uh, I know it's a very strange, kind of fuzzy kind of a subject. And let me assure you uh, that I'm going to try and, and, and discuss this, this whole aspect with you in, in very rational, logical terms. So I'm not going to throw Bible verses at you, which you've never read before to make this case, but, but I'm going to talk very rationally, and I, I'm hoping you're able to kind of connect and track with what I want to say. Let's move to the first thing we are looking at, the explorer's imagination about the end of days. Do we really think about what's happening to us after we die? Uh, for those of us 
who, who are not followers of Jesus, you know, who are just curious about him, uh, just, just interested, maybe just enjoying the church experience a little bit. I bet you don't wake up in the morning thinking, I have to figure out what's happening after death. I think we're far more interested in catching up with what we missed on our Instagram feed through the, through, through the night. Uh, you know, we, we, don't, we hardly ever think about what happens to the world after everybody dies. Is there an end of the world? What happens after that? What happens to us? We rarely ever think about that. You know, as a culture, our disinterest in this theme is rather strange. We are perhaps the first generation in the history of humanity which doesn't really have a strong view about what happens after death. You know, if you look historically, every culture, every civilization, every religion has had some strong views. You know, whether they're right or wrong is another question. Uh, whether they figured out what's going to happen after death or not is another question, but they engaged with the question. It was, it was very important for them. If you look at the Egyptian civilization, they clearly believed there was some kind of afterlife and they built those pyramids. And if you look at any civilization, any culture, every culture, every religion has some kind of a theology. But if I, if I look at the religion of postmodern secularism or the religion of entrepreneurs, the religion of professionals who are very ambitious, and I'm talking about us, by the way, our religion doesn't really have a theology. We, we don't even think about that. And I was kind of wondering, why is it that we don't even engage with this question? And one pretty immediate answer that kind of came is science. And, you know, we are quite intelligent. We are we're kind of intellectual. We're scientific. Because, but that couldn't be the entire answer. Because, because, I mean, to those, if you're truly scientifically inclined, if you truly follow the process of science, that everything must be established by evidence, uh, there is no scientific evidence to say that there is no life after death. I agree there is no scientific evidence to show that there is life after death, but there is no scientific evidence on the other side too. In fact, I've been reading up and, and kind of there's some research which shows our brains uh, remain alive, remain conscious for some time after death. This is scientific research, but that was not the case a few, even a few years ago. So we don't really, science hasn't really proven anything, either way. So science is, again, I'm not sure, that's the real reason we don't engage with this question of life after death. I think, I think the real reason we don't even consider the question, the real reason we don't even engage with this question, is this. I know this will resonate with us. We're all far too comfortable with this life. You know, we are all far too preoccupied with this. We're all far too satisfied with this to, to really think beyond, think about what happens after we die. And so comfort is actually a big problem. Comfort uh, 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 holds back our spiritual growth. Comfort holds us back from thinking along, a spirit, uh, along these, these lines. All that said, even as I've been arguing, trying to um, explore with you why we don't think about this, at another level, as a culture, we're actually obsessed with life after death. And this is happening at a very subconscious level. Why do you think in Hollywood, entire genre of end-of-the-world movies or ap apocalyptic movies, why do you think they are so popular? 
Why do you think we are always keen to watch? Why do you think we really enjoy these movies? I am legend. It's an old one, a quiet place. I haven't seen that yet. That kind of things about some kind of an end of the world scenario or, or, or the Hunger Games or, or Insurgent, which talks about dystopian kind of futures where the world has fallen apart and something new is kind of emerging. Or a movie like Armageddon, which talks about asteroid hit kind of completely wiping out civilization or Deep Impact or, or local disaster movies like San Andreas. Why do you think as a culture, as scientific people, as intellectual people, why do you think we are so fascinated about this? Deep inside, not at a cognitive intellectual level, but deep inside at a subconscious level, there is this fascination, there is this curiosity that exists in all of us. You know, last week on August 10th, an asteroid bigger than the Eiffel Tower hurled past the Earth. Now, the distance between the Earth and this asteroid was, uh, was 4.6 million miles. That seem, might, might seem like a lot, uh, but, but actually in astronomical terms, it, is, it was a close shave. Now, had this asteroid, which I think was named 2006 QQ23, I don't know what kind of a name that is, if that had even changed this trajectory a little bit, it could have slammed into Earth. And the impact would have been 500 times the, the, the force of the atomic bomb which was dropped on Hiroshima. Half of civilization could have been wiped out. And it's, 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 it's uncanny how science fiction movies kind of find their way into reality. I mean, this scenario, what happened last week, is not too far out from the movie Armageddon. And so we have not just a speculation, but also a fascination, and perhaps even an expectation at a subconscious level of an apocalyptic end. Um, there's this organization called um, B612 Foundation, which is a not-profit working to just, just uh, make sure the Earth doesn't get wiped out by an asteroid hit. They do some fairly good uh, scientific research. Uh, Danica Remy, their president, this is what he said last week in an interview, I think it was with the New York Times. It's 100% certain that you're going to get hit, but it's not 100% certain when. Why am I talking about all this in church? Where's the Bible in, in all of this? Uh, hang on, we'll get there. But why am I talking about all this? My idea, the goal, why I'm kind of just outlining this for us, is to help us engage with this thought about life after death. Because we don't engage in it. And I'm not just talking to explorer here. I'm talking also to followers of Jesus. I don't engage with the reality of an eternity after life, after death, enough. Because if I'm really engaging with the eternity, if I'm really engaging with what I believe, my life I know will look very different. And so I'm trying to engage both explorers and believers and followers of Jesus with this, with this real issue of, of life after death. Um, we'll get to the Bible in just a minute. But before that, if I just very, very practically, logically think about what, what could happen, what are the, what are the possibilities? What are the things that could happen um, life after death? The first possibility, and I suspect that's what most of us kind of very subconsciously believe in, is after death, we cease to exist. Death is the end of our consciousness. Our bodies decay. Our consciousness or soul or spirit, whatever you call it, 
is terminated. It ends. And that's it. There's nothing. I mean, it's like a computer that's completely crashed. There's, there's no consciousness, no, no awareness. That is truly the end. That's one possibility. If that's true, are you and I really happy with that? Are you and I uh, willing to believe that, that we are no better than trash? That when we are dead, we are just thrown away, buried, cremated, whatever it may be, and that's it? Are you happy with that? That means life has no meaning, it has no purpose, what you do counts for nothing. It means our loved ones don't exist anymore. It means death is the end. It's not a comfortable thought. I don't think any of us want that thought. That may be the direction we are thinking, but that's not what we want. It's not acceptable for me. I feel humans, human beings, are too beautiful. I feel we are too precious. I feel we are too intricately made for us to just cease to exist and have no meaning beyond 70 or 80 years or whatever the lifespan is. The second possibility, and I don't think this is real, I don't think any of us really believe in this, though culturally this is very popular in a narrative, the second possibility is, is rebirth. That after this life we are kind of reborn uh, into another and then another and another. I won't get too deep into this, but let me say that this is equally meaningless. Because think about this with me, at the end of 10 lives being reborn, 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 what consciousness do we have? I mean, which of those 10 lives we've lived is our true consciousness, which is our true identity. And if there is indeed heaven after this multiple birth, everybody in heaven is going to have a multiple personality disorder. <laughs> Whose consciousness is truly yours? Who are you? Again, that's as bad as the first of having no identity at all. So I'm not... I don't want to live eternity with a multiple personality disorder. You know, am I male? Am I female? Am I... I don't want to live like that, you know. Again, it's meaningless. The third possibility, which also I think uh, people like us are ten, tend to lean towards, is that after death, we are all floating in this state of goodness, in the state of peace and, and, and beauty and calmness. And, you know, there's this very, you know, very amorphous... It's just a happy place. And all of us, after we die, kind of are floating. We have our individual consciousness. We are, I am Anand in that state, and you are who you are. We're kind of floating in that space. It sounds good. Almost believable. Except when I'm floating in that space, I turn to my right and see a rapist floating in the same goodness with me. I don't want that. None of us want that, right? So, so this, this happy place after life where there's no hell, there's no punishment, is not acceptable to any of us. You see the problem, you see where I'm going with this. None of these scenarios give us a convincing answer. None of, none of these scenarios satisfy our soul, satisfy our desire for meaning and purpose. None of these scenarios satisfy our desire for justice, which is there. None of these uh, answers, you know, satisfy the need for closure we all feel. And so, having reasoned these possibilities out with us, allow me to move in uh, to, the, to the fourth possibility, and that's what the Bible talks about. That brings us to the second thing I want to draw for us, the believer's faith about the end of days. 
the believer's faith about the end of days. The Bible teaches us that the end of days is not the end of us. The Bible teaches us the end of days, whether it's our death or whether it's the end of the world, does not mean our consciousness is terminated. The Bible believes all of us are there for eternity. But look at verse 2 that we read in the passage. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. It means pretty much all here. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the Bible is building a case that there is an everlasting after death. And there are two possible outcomes in this everlasting. One is everlasting life and joy and happiness and rejoicing. And the other is everlasting shame. Everlasting life and everlasting shame, I think, are two very helpful descriptions to help us think about and perhaps understand this paradigm of heaven and hell. Everlasting life connecting to heaven and everlasting shame kind of pointing to hell. Do heaven and hell really exist? We do need to make our minds about it. Because if heaven and hell do not exist, what Jesus did for us is meaningless. If there is no hell, if there is indeed no hell, why did Jesus die? What did he save us from? And so some of us who are intellectually wired uh, tend to reject this idea of hell and eternal punishment. We find it hard to accept this idea that God created hell. A loving God cannot punish people for eternity. And that's, that's our line of thinking. And not just explorers, even some of us who are Christians actually wrestle with this doubt deep inside. Does heaven and hell really exist? And I want to engage with that a little bit. Everlasting shame is one description of hell. It's not the most popular description, but it's an accurate description. And it's a very helpful description. Let's, let's think of shame. Imagine you're invited to a party and you walk into the party, you're thinking it's a cool, yuppie party and so you pick a pair of shorts, flip-flops, uh, a t-shirt and then you walk uh, into the party and to your utter horror, you found, find that it's a formal party. All the men are in grey suits and all the women are in expensive dresses and you're walking around in shorts and flip-flops. We're going to experience shame in that moment. Uh, um, when will the shame go away? That shame will go away, will not go away, till we are clothed better at the party. Now, if you think of heaven as a party, which it is, the Bible talks about heaven as a banquet, that's, that's Bible language. In reality, in our language, heaven is a, is, is a never-ending party beautiful party, good party, where we celebrate the goodness of God and the goodness of how he has made us. If heaven is a party, then we are not just underdressed at the party, we are actually naked. We have turned up naked to this party. You know, this theme of, of, of uh, uh, sin as nakedness is a very biblical theme. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they felt they were naked. And so they had to, you know, stitch garments uh, with fig leaves around them. And when God uh, uh, comes and confronts them. Even in that confrontation is compassion. He clothes them with, with garments of skin uh, made from an animal. And so in this imaginary party and in the eternal party, for the shame to be taken away, 
the nakedness has to be covered. I mean, if you're still not able to track with me about this shame, just think about this for one minute. It's going to make you very uncomfortable. Imagine if everything you've done in your life is made open and known to everyone. How many of us will feel comfortable sitting here? I won't. Shame. Because none of us, all of us have things we don't want others to know. We're not, we're ashamed of it ourselves, leave alone the world. And so for the shame to be covered, we have to be clothed. And it's not physical shame or physical nakedness we are talking about. It's the nakedness of the soul. So we need garments not of clothes, but we need garments for the soul to cover us. And that's what Jesus did. He gave us his very righteousness. He clothed us with his righteousness. He covered us with all his good deeds so that all our bad deeds are gone. And so any eternity without Jesus is everlasting shame because nobody else can cover us with his righteousness. Nobody else is perfect. No human, no idea of God is perfect except in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. And so if we end up in everlasting shame, we can't really blame God for it because God is offering Christ Jesus to everyone. Jesus is willing to cover anybody's nakedness with his death and sacrifice on the cross. Another way to understand hell, you know, along the lines of everlasting shame is to think of hell as a place of everlasting strife. You know, none of us like conflict, whether it's your husband and wife, you know, family, friends, colleagues, none of us like conflict. None of us enjoy it. I mean, we are all worn out when we are in conflict. Our souls are deflated when we are in conflict. Imagine two people who are extremely cruel and who are very full of vengeance, two people in a room forever. What will be their plight? Two wicked, evil, scheming, cunning, violent people in a room forever. What's, what's their plight? Um, what is hell for them? I mean, they don't really need God to make a hell. I mean, they're going to make that room hell for each other. Right? Right? Unless someone completely transforms them, they're just going to be at each other because that's their natural inclination. That's how they're wired. And, and God doesn't have to create a hell. They're going to make sure they create hell for each other. So in one sense, God is not punishing them but their own cruelty is making it hell for each other. So even if God just withdraws from our life, He doesn't actively punish us. I'm not saying that's the case. But hear me out. Stay with me in the conversation. Even if God says they want to live life their way, sure, they can live life their way. If God withdraws from us, humanity, we, we will be in a really bad shape. You're seeing the depravity in humanity in, of humans in the news every day. What men do to children is shocking. If, if God were to withdraw his restraining grace, we would experience hell on earth. We don't need God to create hell. Our sinfulness, our cruelty, our wickedness can create is good enough to create hell for each other to last a lifetime. I'm not saying God does not punish. All I'm merely showing is even if God does not punish. That's our intellectual reservation that how can God punish? How can a loving God punish? Even if God doesn't punish, it is still hell. That's the point I'm trying to make. Even the absence of God is hell. 
you know, in my early years as a follower of Jesus, one of the questions that I struggled with for a long time when I became a follower of Jesus is why should hell be eternal? Isn't that a really sadistic God who kind of punishes people forever? Why can't, okay, sure, God is just, I know I messed up, I'm not denying that. Let him punish me for a few days. Let him punish me for a month, uh, maybe a year max, uh, or a little more. And, and then, can, why, don't, why, why does he teach me for a few months here, uh, you know, make sure I've learned my lesson, and then why can't he bring me back into heaven? Why is hell eternal? Why should I spend, why is God so uh, hung up that I have to be uh, in hell for uh, eternity? It's a very logical question. And I wrestled with this for a long time. So I'm going to try my best to give you a very logical answer. You know, the Indian Penal Code, um, as just as it is, is inadequate. We cannot impose the laws of government on the justice of God. And I'll explain. The laws of human government, human governance, are woefully inadequate when it comes to seeking godly justice. I'll give us a real example. And it involves you. Now, let's say you have a life saving of 50 lakhs. And you've just converted that into cash uh, and, and you, you have that 50 lakhs at home. And one day a burglar comes, he, he beats you up, he takes that 50 lakhs and he goes. He vanishes. Four months later, the police catch him. But there is no sign of the 50 lakhs. So you file a case, there's a trial, he's convicted, they find him guilty. Uh, he serves seven years in prison as a sentence. But there's still no sign of the money. At the first year of the eighth year, he served the sentence. He's released from prison. Legally, he's free. Legally, justice has been done because he's been punished for his, for his crime. But are you happy? Are you going to be happy with that scenario? You have not got a single rupee of that 50 lakhs back from him. You see, the sentence has been served, but has justice been done? You see, justice is still incomplete. Till, to you, justice is never complete till he pays back that 50 lakh with interest for eight years. Now, if you're planning to put that money in mutual fund, then you better match the stock market returns, the index, the index returns. Otherwise, justice is not done. See, legal justice is not enough to satisfy the wronged. And so in the same way, in any sin against God, we have robbed his creation of holiness. When we sin, we are marring, we are corrupting God's perfect creation. To that extent, we have robbed God of his glory. So it's not just enough if you're punished for the crime, the justice is done only when we pay back the glory of God which we have robbed by our sin. Let me, let me break that down into a, into a real-life scenario, which I'm sure we can all relate to. Imagine all of us just laser on for a full week doing nothing except playing video games, binge-watching Netflix, and eating pizza. Right now, is resting for a week sin a sin? Not at all. But if you're just binge-watching Netflix and playing video games, are those sin? Not in itself. Uh, but to spend a full week doing just, just vegetating, you know, just, just living life with, with, with no meaning, doing nothing, running away from your responsibilities, that is definitely sin. Let's say we do that. Let's say we do that for the entire week. 
And in that week, if we do that, you and I, we've robbed God of his glory for not living with the purpose and the meaning that he has created us with. We've robbed of his glory because we've not been good stewards of the resources and the talent and the skills he has given us. So should I be punished for that? Yes. But will the punishment alone set right the wrong? No, because the punishment justice is not complete unless I repay back the glory that I robbed by wasting that one week of my life. How can I repay God for the glory that I've robbed him of? I cannot. That one week is gone. I cannot roll back time. I cannot pay time back to God. So I am separated by God. I'm separated from God till I repay what I've robbed him. That is why hell is eternal. Because human beings can never repay God for the harm they've done to God because of their sin. Because even though the sentence may be finished, justice is not done. Human beings who've sinned against God have to repay God for what they've robbed them of. How on earth are we going to repay God? The robber who spent that 50 lakhs, no way is going to repay. And so the principle of justice demands that the punishment should continue till the debt is repaid. That's why hell is eternal. We cannot be in God's presence or have fellowship with him if we are not sinless. Unless we are perfect, we can never have perfect fellowship with a perfect God. That kind of suggests that shame, that kind of suggests that if we really measure ourselves from God's standard, everlasting shame awaits all of us. Because we all mess up. And there's no way we can pay back God. What is the way to everlasting life? Are we all destined for everlasting shame? Is there a way at all to everlasting life? And the answer is right here in the passage that we're looking at. It's there in verse 1. But that, at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is, shall be found written in the book. What is this book that is being talked about here? This book that's being talked about here is what the Bible calls the book of life. The book of Revelation, which is the last part of the Bible, that kind of refers to this book of life about five, six times. Jesus himself talked about this book of life. Other scriptures from the Old Testament talk about this, this book of life. And each time this book of life is mentioned in the Bible, it is referred to as the Lamb's book of life, as the book of life that of, of Christ Jesus. And this book of life has the names of everyone who believes that Jesus died for them. This book of life has a, the names of everyone who believes that God himself, Christ Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life as a sacrifice for us on the cross and rose again from the dead so that we might have this eternal life. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ, his or her name is written in the book of life. And the Bible teaches us that one day Christ Jesus is going to come back. And that's what this chapter in Daniel is pointing to. The Bible teaches us that one day Christ Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, all the dead shall arise. 
and all the, uh, those who are alive will stand before Jesus as he sits on the judgment throne. And everybody will be judged, both believers and followers. And those of us who, who, who are explorers or those of us who have rejected Jesus, everybody will stand before God in judgment. And all of our good deeds and bad deeds will be, will be, will be laid out. And we will all be judged. Even believers will be judged. God will call us into account. But when the accounts are laid out, when we see we deserve punishment, the Lamb of God will stand up in our place. Jesus Christ, whom the Bible calls our advocate, will stand up in our place. He, say, he will say before God the Father, I bore the punishment for their sins. And so they are justified. They are made perfect. And so they can be with God for eternity. And we will have everlasting life. And those who reject Jesus, who, who, who say, I don't want this Jesus. I don't want him to cover my nakedness. I don't want him to cover my shame. I don't want his righteousness. Those of us who reject will have everlasting shame. And this is where who Jesus is and what he has done for us comes to our heart beautifully. Think of this for a moment. Think of this for a moment. Do you know of any God who says, I will die to save men? We all know of gods who, who, die, who, who kills bad people and blesses good people. That's our construct of God across religions. That's our construct of God. But what Jesus has done is the exact opposite. Jesus, who is God himself, the Son of God, he has said and done I will be punished by God. The full punishment of hell, Jesus took upon himself so that justice can be done. And not only is the punishment done, Jesus was righteous. He was sinless. He was perfect in every way. And so he paid back the glory of God, which we lost, which we robbed. So in every sense, in its fullest sense, Jesus has done justice to God by being punished for our sins. And his resurrection from the dead is proof that justice has been done. Because when justice is done, he cannot no longer be under the sentence of death. And he rose again from the dead. And that's why Jesus says in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That brings us to the last thing. Only Jesus can give us eternal life. The last thing I want to draw, and we'll close in three to five minutes, is our identity at the end of days. How does our faith about the end of days, about the final judgment, how is that going to shape our identity here and now? Daniel, we see from this passage, really understood the full reality of resurrection from the dead of final judgment. And that's what this passage clearly tells us. He, he had a full understanding. Through the vision, Daniel was, had a full revelation of this. And one commentator, Bible commentator, Philip uh, Davis, puts it this way. These four verses are arguably the most important in the book of Daniel, for they contain the only unambiguous statement of belief in the resurrection, of resurrection in the Old Testament. So what this commentator is saying, that's true, is Daniel had the fullest understanding of resurrection of death in the Old Testament. Of course, in the New Testament, when Jesus came, he kept teaching this again and again and again. But in the Old Testament, 
Daniel is one of the rare examples who had a full understanding of resurrection. Now let's go back to the question we began this talk with. What did Daniel get for a lifetime of faithfulness? The reward he got on earth, he hardly got any reward. He spent 70 years as an exile. Or whatever reward in terms of honor he may have got was inadequate reward on earth. But he got eternal life because of his faith in Jesus. He received a full revelation of the eternity he has got in Christ Jesus. And he was able to believe in the resurrection. He was at rest. He was at peace. And at the end of his life, Daniel received a revelation of eternal life in Christ Jesus. And that was enough for him. As we sung, Christ is enough for me, Christ was enough for Daniel. Christ was the reward for Daniel. Eternal life with Christ was the reward for Daniel. And he rested contentedly in it. Daniel found rest in his life circumstances, in his identity, in the light of eternal life with Christ Jesus. I want to close with, with one application for us. Something that's going to bring everything I've been sharing to our hearts. That's going to shape how we live now. That's going to, by God's grace, that's going to change how we live our lives. Here's the point. Our present identity is revealing to us the true depth and the scope of our faith about eternity. Who we are now, our present identity is telling us what we believe in about the end of days. It's telling us what we believe in about the end. Let me, let me unpack this for us. If our present identity is defined by bitterness and hurt, we don't believe enough in the beautiful life after death we're going to have. If my present life is with, is with unforgiveness to people who have hurt us, if that's my present identity, then I have negated the work of Christ on the cross. That he's going to forgive all of us who believe in him, and there's going to be restoration, there's going to be reconciliation. If our present identity is defined by sadness, he tells me, I don't really believe in the eternal joy and rejoicing. I don't believe in the never-ending party with God himself that Christ Jesus has earned for us. If my present identity is defined by worthlessness, I'm not really believing God has made me so worthy because by sacrificing his son Christ Jesus that he's going to enjoy me and I'm going to enjoy him for eternity. For God, because he gave his son Christ Jesus, we are worth an eternity. We are worthy of spending eternity with him. If my present identity is defined by striving, I've forgotten that the eternal life is one not by doing things, but by believing in Jesus. What is your present identity? What is your life and mind defined by? And what is our present identity telling us about our faith in eternity? I want to invite us to take a very honest look as we 
kind of move closer to the end of this 20 week, 20 part talk on, probably do one more week on identity formation. What's the defining identity of your life? What's the biggest narrative? What's the overwhelming theme of your life? And how are you by faith in Christ Jesus going to connect that theme to the eternity you and I have when we believe in Christ Jesus. If you're an explorer, um, you know, maybe this is your first time in a church or you're kind of just kind of checking Jesus out, I really want to encourage us to think about this. You want to engage, you want to discuss, just walk up to one of us and we'll be very happy to kind of discuss this with you. But here and now, if you're finding that your heart is moved by Jesus, you can put your faith in him now. You can receive him to cover your nakedness now. Just, just pray to him as I pray. Just cry on, cry out to the name of Jesus as I close in prayer. And, and you can truly experience his love and his blessing. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, Lord. Uh, we pray, Lord, help us. Um, not to uh, live like the ostrich by putting our head in the ground and pretending the realities around us do not exist. And so, Lord, open us uh, to the spiritual reality of eternal life, to the spiritual reality of God, to the spiritual reality of atonement, to the spiritual reality of God laying down his life to purchase, to pay for the souls of men and women with his very blood, with his very life. And I pray that the power of redemption will, will be unleashed even now, Lord, bringing explorers to faith and, and bringing believers, Lord, to deeper repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.